Coming up on Art Palace. The, the more you're willing to fail and make a fool out of yourself, the more you will eventually get better at putting forth stuff that is like, that really worked. I can build on that. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Kevin Allison from the Risk Podcast. My therapist once advised me, he was like, because you're so used to being interviewed on podcasts and because you're so used to turning on, uh, maybe you could, the next time you feel socially anxious at a party, imagine you're you're being interviewed for a podcast. And I was like, I, well, I don't know. That sounds a little, you know, strained, but yeah, it is interesting the way that we have these turning on or off parts of our personality. Yeah. I have a friend who, when we would like just hang out, sometimes we would talk, we sort of started to realize like we were sort of performing for an audience that was not there. Like we, <laughs> we both kind of knew we were doing it. Yeah. I mean, we were each other's audience, I yeah. think in that way, but we knew it was a very conscious thing of like, we are performing right now. Oh yeah. And uh, we are performing just for an audience of two, basically. Yes. Yeah. And, and improv comedians and co co comedic writers riff like that with, yeah. with one another in a friendly way where they know, you know, it's just us two or three people in the room. Mm -hmm joking like this, but a lot of sketches or movie characters or stage characters start to come to life when people play off one another that way in a very improv-y way, but it's just... It's just habitual joking around amongst friends, you know. When I was I was in a sketch comedy group in my college years when I was at NYU, and we eventually got our own sketch comedy show on MTV. It, we were called The State. And I always regretted that I was a little bit shy about diving in and going all the way with a lot of that joking around. I mean, I could, I was good at making jokes, but I didn't know how to like start building a character and continue, you know, keep mm. the riff going and going and going with a character in the way that some of the other guys got very used to doing in just a playful way with each other. And a lot of the sketches that we ended up using on MTV came out of that just guys, you know, in the group playing around with each other socially. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think you, you felt like you couldn't get, put yourself out there in that way? I was always the kind of person who wanted, I got very used to as a kid thinking a thing should be written first and written and edited and perfected before you present it to anyone else. And it took me a long time to realize that, uh, at least in the performing arts, that that's a killer uh, of, of, of an attitude to have. Um, so 
That's why improv, I, I recommend to young people that they do take improv classes of sorts, because one of the things you learn in a class like that is you, tr- you, you let things come out of your mouth and you're hoping that they're funny. And a lot of the things that come out of your mouth are going to land flat on the floor, like, you know, embarrassingly, you know, are not going to be funny. But that is an essential part of the practice of learning to be okay with failing a lot uh, in order to start to, you know, succeed. You know, like the, the more you're willing to fail and make a fool out of yourself, the more you will eventually get better at putting forth stuff that is like, oh, well, now that really worked. I can build on that. Yeah. Did, did you come from a really traditional theater background more than an improv background? Or Yes. I, when I was a kid, I was obsessed, absolutely obsessed with records. And so I used to listen to a lot of Broadway musicals. I grew up, I, I, I was born in 1970 and I grew up listening to a lot of records like Jesus Christ Superstar, for example, and just imagining, you know, scenes in my head while listening to records. And eventually I went to St. Xavier High School. Mm-hmm. And at the time that I, in my freshman year there, Michelle Maskeri was brand new. She had just been hired to take over the theater department there. And she just happened to be this absolutely driven, visionary, just someone who was so gung-ho to make Mm -hmm. a really dynamic, fabulous theater company there at that high school that I was just really blessed. A lot of wonderful people came out of Theater Xavier. You know, like Andy Blankenbuehler has won Tony Awards for his work on Hamilton and In the Heights. Um, A lot of the people that I was in high school with, you know, have, have sung on Broadway or have, uh, you know, been on TV in various ways. And so it's just very, very exciting. Yeah, they still have a great reputation for that. Theater yeah. Program. It's it's still like a part of their their legacy. So you just kind of dropped that you were, you, you're from Cincinnati originally. And yeah. when I met you at the door, you mentioned like it had been years since you had been in the building. <laughs> yes. You know, what's interesting is that I became a museum guard. Oh gosh, I, I would say it was probably between my junior year and senior year in college at NYU at MoMA. So I was a museum guard who would stand for eight hours a day in one gallery, and then they'd change you to another gallery the next day. And that was an amazing experience. When I was in my younger years, when I had to take survival jobs, I would often deliberately make them at artistic institutions so I could learn something. So I learned, I worked at the Metropolitan Opera for a little while and MoMA. I'm trying to think where else, but, but the MoMA experience was great because I would stand in the, in a gallery. Mm -hmm. And then when it was lunchtime, I would go to the bookstore and read all about the artists in that gallery that I was looking at all day. And so it was a real education. I, 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 Look back on that very fondly. Now, as a comedian, years later, (laughs) there was a show that some friends of mine created, which I think has since been kicked out of the Metropolitan (laughs) Museum of Art in New York. And it was something, it was called something like Fancy to See You Here. And the show was 
five comedians would gather in the lobby at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and invite friends to be their audience. And then kind of without the museum's permission, they would just <laughs> lead a tour. And it was just each comedian would choose a different wing and so I always chose the modern art wing when I would do that yeah. show because I knew a lot of those artists already from having worked at MoMA. Yeah. But the the my jokes were very inappropriate. You know, <laughs> not the kind of thing that, you know, like, you know, body sorts of humor. Uh, and, you know, I think the museum was eventually like, what? Who are these people? And what are they telling people about our art? Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's so, there's a this company now called Museum Hack, hmm. and they basically have made a business out of doing that. Oh, and they they run tours. They're probably not quite so inappropriate, but yeah. they they are definitely more they pushing the edge than a traditional museum tour you would sign up for. So um, it's like for it's a little bit more entertaining. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Probably a little quicker paced too. So did you came here though when you were a kid? I mean, did you? Did you get dragged here on field trips or anything? Well, you know, my father is an artist. Uh, My father worked mostly in graphic design. Back in the day, they called it a commercial artist. Mm -hmm. And so he... He worked, he tried to build his own business in the mid 70s and that didn't do so well. Otherwise, he worked with, you know, smaller companies, but did a lot of work for like PNG, for example. Um, But he, you know, his his passion when he was younger was more serious art. He, to this day, he still paints a lot of like outdoor landscapes or birds. And, And another thing is that my father loved opera. And he loved two things more than anything else as far as hobbies went, and they were football and opera. And I had two older brothers, and so he clearly saw, okay, the two older ones I can take to the football games, (laughs) but this younger one I can take to the opera. (laughs) So, you know, seven, eight years old, I'm going to the opera. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's going on on stage, you know, because they didn't even, like this, we're talking like 1976, 1977. They didn't yet have subtitles Mm -hmm. that they would play at the Cincinnati Opera. Um, So I was just like, had to guess what the heck was going on. (laughs) Uh, But... I was enthralled by it. I was fascinated by it. And uh, so, yeah, between his interest in he, he. So, yeah, he also like got me interested in visual art. We used to have a lot of art books mm-hmm. around the house, you know, of the great old paintings. And uh, yeah, I, I've, I've just always been interested in. Like what it, what has always intrigued me about art that hangs on a wall is to there's almost a spiritual connection sometime sometimes if an image is really speaking to you that that really struck me when I worked at MoMA for all those years was that I would sometimes feel like I had. I mean, this sounds woo-woo, this sounds silly, but I would sometimes feel like I had a little bit of a spiritual or ESP sort of connection or was hearing something from uh, whatever, you know, Cezanne or whatever artist it was, if a painting was really speaking to me that day. And when 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 you're there for eight hours in one gallery, uh, you really get 
to you really get to spend some time, you know, that like you can really meditate on a painting if it's really speaking to you, if you take time like that. So, yeah, I've, I've just always I just think that like life with as much art of any kind in it as you can have uh, is a very a healing thing for the soul. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, you, you probably, you, you've got a better sense of the, probably the right way to look at art as far as we would like to encourage people. I mean, I don't want to tell people there's a right or wrong way to look at art, but one of the things we try to encourage is to slow down, you know, yeah. usually. Um, and you know, if you were asked, you know, when I go to a museum in another city, I usually try to just say, okay, I, you know, I really want to focus on this. Oh yeah. I'm just going to go to this part of the museum. That's what I really want to see. And then what else we might see on our way there. Great. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Often too, when we, you know, I'm leading a tour or something with a group of people and we stop and look at something and you spend a really long time looking at it almost always, even if it's a painting that people or a work of art that people don't actually like at first, by the time they spend a little more time with it, they almost always like it at least more than they did when they start. Oh, well, I, you know, that was a big lesson when we started doing our show, The State on MTV in the early 90s, was we had to keep reminding ourselves that because our sense of humor was based on such intimate relationships, we had been friends for well, we the group was together for eight years, and we were like the very best of friends during those years. And our sketches were very much based not on what we thought other people would find funny, but what we the way we joked around with each other and mm -hmm. what we found funny as friends. And when the first reviews of the first few episodes were negative, we really had to remind ourselves oh, they're just not getting it yet. Yeah. You know, they need some time to sit with us mm -hmm. and start to kind of imbibe our chemistry and like, like feel the vibe that we're putting into this before they start to be able to laugh along with us, yeah. you know? And I think that that's very true of, of, a, of a lot of art that, you know, like, for example, there will be movies by Scorsese or something like that where you'll you'll be like, I remember seeing New York, New York, his um, a movie he made in the 70s. And at the time thinking, this is kind of a mess. And then a few days later, I'm still thinking about yeah. that movie. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that's always a great sign. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember reading something I, uh, Roger Ebert had written about that sort of effect. And he said something like, when you... When you see a, a good movie, you often don't know what you've just seen. Yes. But when you see a bad movie, you know exactly what you've seen, usually. <laughs> this is one of the most profound instances of me learning about art in my life was that when I was nine, I, I can't remember if I was eight years old or nine years old. I must have been nine years old because eight seems too young. But my parents left me alone in the house for the first time, just by myself, no yeah. babysitter, right? <laughs> um, my brothers and sisters were all elsewhere. And it's a little scary for a kid to be that age and all alone in the house, you know? And so my dad said, oh, there's a great movie on PBS tonight that you, you, you really should try to make a point to see. I fell asleep on the couch with the TV on, and then the movie started. And because the movie starts with this 
horror music that's very startling, I wake up and Citizen Kane was just starting. Now, my dad hadn't told me a single thing about this movie. Other than that, it's a great movie. You should watch it. And at the age of nine, I had only seen really traditional Hollywood entertainment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I'm watching Citizen Kane. And I was baffled. I didn't know what I was watching. And at the end, but I was so intrigued. I was like, this movie is very different. There is a lot going on in here. And at the end of the movie, when the camera pulls away and reveals something to you that the storytelling has not otherwise told you so far, because mm-hmm. it's told from various perspectives. And then at the end, the camera is like God and gives you yeah. another perspective and reveals something very revealing. Uh, I was crying. I was weeping at the end of this movie. And I had no idea why I was crying either. I was kind of spooked out yeah. that this was such a d- confusing and but yet beautiful and dynamic thing I, I had just seen. And I talked to my dad about it the other day or the next day. And he was like, yeah, it's a real work of art. And it had never occurred to me that a movie mm-hmm. could be a work of art. And I became obsessed with movies after that. I yeah. started buying books like, you know, Leonard Malton's Guide to All the Movies and everything. And then I started seeing, because my dad was pointing out to me, yeah, look at these stills from like this Kurosawa movie or something like that. That looks like a painting, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, you know. So, yeah, it's it's really wonderful Especially when kids kind of see something for the first time, even if they might have passed by it before, there's that experience like waking up and Citizen Kane is happening in front of your eyes where, oh, I'm really seeing this now. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking when you were telling that story about my own experiences watching things probably too young or, you know, yeah. way, above, way over your head. I remember watching uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half when I was like... <laughs> 11 or something, you know, yeah, like, and, yeah, and yeah. I would just, I would watch uh, movies incessantly too. And I would just rent them from our local like video store. Yeah. And they would have a lot of weird stuff like that, like eight and a half. And I, I remember being like, oh, this box looks interesting. And I, I and you know, it was just literally the, it just says eight and a half on like in yeah. very flowery text, I feel like. And I was like, what is this? And I remember sort of, yeah, not following it at all. But then it gets to that ending when all of his, you know, the, the sort of Fellini stand in character, like, brings back all of his family and friends and they mm-hmm. all walk down these stairs and start doing this dance. And it was just so amazing to me. And I was like, I want to watch this again. Yeah. Like I, it, it's sort of when you finish something and you immediately want to just like, I want to turn this back on. And, uh, even if you didn't know what you were just watching. You know? Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree with that. The first, I didn't read Moby Dick until I was, Oh, I don't know. Probably around 30. Yeah. You know, I like I never encountered yeah. it in high school or college. But I picked it up when I was around 30 for some Oh, I remember when I was 30, I I said everyone who comes to my 30th birthday party has to bring me a classic piece of literature. Okay. So it was awesome. I got all these great old books. So I started reading Moby Dick, and it, again, it was one of those things where I was like, what is going on? <laughs> You know, it yeah. was a lot like the, the, these two movies we just discussed yeah. where it's like, 
I, this is all over the place. This is the most confusing. I don't know what's going on in this, but I did read it again right after finishing yeah. it because I was like, I don't want to be done reading Moby Dick. That was amazing. And when you and, and, and when you read the first chapter of Moby Dick after reading the whole book, it feels like a totally different book yeah, too. Yeah, right, right, Like you right. start that book and you go, oh, like this feels like... Because at the beginning, you're just like, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. <laughs> like, and, you know, you just have no clue where this is all going. And, and yeah, it's such an insane book. I mean, that's one of the things I constantly recommend to people because I feel like a lot of people haven't read it. I'm like, you have to read it. It's yeah. so good. And, and it's like, it's the most, it's truly like one of the most bizarre books I've ever read. And it's like... It, it, Oh, you're reading this novel? No, now you're reading an encyclopedia entry. Yeah, now yeah. you're reading a play. Now you're reading it just keeps changing formats and it's, it's very so postmodern. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I actually think about that book a lot when I'm looking at paintings from that time period mm. and just thinking like trying to see it in them almost like this was the beginnings of modernism really mm. and this is where people are starting to like pick apart the structure to like reveal the underlying source like you know, when you're reading Moby Dick you're aware I am reading a book. Right. right. And so the same thing is kind of happening in the in the 19th century in painting where people start to go, you were looking at a right, painting. Right, right, right. You know, we're going to show you the paint here. You, we're going to see the canvas. Uh-huh. And that's all sort of going to build on itself until, you know, it's it's hard to actually see it in those early painting sometimes from our viewpoint where ah. we, we know where it's gone. We've yes. seen the impressionism. We've seen the post-impressionism. We've seen the expressionism. We've seen all of this stuff happen. And when you, it's hard for our eyes to register that like radicalness of it. You know, this is the, this is the converse side of what we were talking about before. When you're coming to something with such fresh eyes, like me and Citizen Kane at the age of nine, it's kind of so different than, say, if I were to go to see the Mona Lisa right now. You know what I mean? Where you're stepping into a situation where there has been so much marketing and positioning around what this image is and what it means in society that it's very hard to come to a painting like that with fresh eyes, you know? Yeah, you you absolutely can't see it. I mean, it's it's it is one of these things that's impossible to divorce from its fame and uh-huh. and its its idea of a famous image. Like yeah. that is why you go to see it at this point and that's why people see it. And I mean, I went to the Louvre for the first time last year and I had the same experience where I kind of like, well, I guess we'll go see it. You know, like we have to, right? Uh-huh, like uh-huh. we have to go in the bil- in the room. I know I'm going to be annoyed, but like, let's go do this. Uh-huh. But, you know, just outside in the hallway is another Da Vinci painting that is, in my opinion, just as beautiful. And nobody's usually, maybe I'm, there's always a few people who know and they're always standing around it. But compared to the Mona Lisa, where you can't get anywhere close to that. This one you can get right up on top of. Um, and... It's it's like interesting to see the comparison of how this one is just about itself. It's just about being famous at this point. Yeah. So, but but you make a great point. The journey to like go there and have the experience. You you have no idea what might happen all around it. I had a very similar experience. I was just in Bangkok in January. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, well, you have to go to the Grand Palace of the King of Siam. Right. And um, I was like, all all right. You know, I I was a little fearful that that was going to be a messy day, you know, of like being swamped by tourists. And but man, I want, you know, there are nooks and crannies of the palace grounds that are just like 
it's just so much grandeur and beauty and just so much that I found it just fascinating to get lost in these tiny little alcoves, you Mm -hmm. know, where no one else was looking and just feel like, wow, the history and the... The the you know like w- w- just in, you know I, I, it's hard to keep the king and I out of your head the songs <laughs> from the king and I out of your head when you're walking through there but just to imagine oh my gosh the relationships and the trysts and the whatever that were happening in these little alcoves it's amazing yeah yeah, yeah. and it's sort of interesting to think of that in the the way this is full of all these people too and even the weird oh. collision of those two things is sort of interesting too. Well, you know what I found funny from that perspective was they have the temple where the Buddha is, Mm. you know, and it's actually a very small Buddha in this temple, but it's, you know, it's kind of like the Holy of Holies Mm -hmm. in, um, in Bangkok. And that of course is the hardest room to get into because everyone wants to go there because of its reputation and everything, but you have to take your shoes off to go in there. And so I found it hilariously funny that once you get into this holiest of places, it could not be stinkier. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's because it's very like humid and muggy in Thailand all the time and everyone just took their shoes off. That's delightful. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Well, we haven't actually talked anything about Risk at all. So <laughs> how did you start making the podcast and how did you start making Risk? Well, you know, I realized I was gay when I was a little kid and it was, you know, that's an unusual experience. Most people begin who are gay begin to realize it, you know, in the high school, Mm. college, round about that time. But I was hyper aware of it, like from the beginning of consciousness. Yeah, which which I had by all, you know, uh, objective reality, a a, uh, happy childhood, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I grew up terrified about this thing that I was keeping a secret the whole time. You know, my family was very devoutly Catholic and everything, and so I was afraid I was going to go to hell, and I was afraid that if anyone found out about this part of me that I'd lose all my friends and family. It was, uh, it was very scary, that, that aspect of my life when I was a child. So I, as the years went by, of course, I did start coming out to people in high school and mm-hmm. college and yada yada. But I grew up very fascinated and obsessed and had a complex around this whole idea of coming out. Mm. Which sides of my personality do, do I allow people to see when? And when I became a comedian uh, after college, I felt like, oh, I have to have as much control over that as possible. I have to like be whatever Hollywood wants me to be. And when my sketch comedy group broke up, That just wasn't working for me. I wasn't able to figure out when I might seem too gay in a character I was performing or when I might be coming off as too Midwestern because I am (laughs) uh, or when I might seem a little bit too absurdist because I'm such a comedian, et cetera, et cetera. So I was always second guessing myself about the sides of my personality I was showing to people. And it was really shooting myself in the foot. I got more and more stage fright and more and more social anxiety about this over the years. And during the 12 years between the state, my sketch comedy group breaking up Mm -hmm. 
and 2009 when I created Risk, I was just a starving artist. I was, you know, I was doing a lot of cater waitering. I was drinking too much. I was just battling with stage fright and just not getting anywhere in my career. Then in 2009, I did a show a one-person show. It was five kooky characters, like I was used to doing from my sketch comedy Mm -hmm. days. And all five characters, the theme was that they had screwed up their careers. (laughs) So it was obviously trying to be kind of (laughs) autobiographical, but in in a kooky, character-y way, right? Right. And Michael Ian Black, who had been a member of the state, came to see the show. And afterwards, I said, what'd you think? And he said, I think the whole audience just wishes you would have dropped the mask. Just stop acting like these characters. Get up on stage and tell your own true stories. And I said, oh, I'm just afraid that I'm too too gay sometimes and too Midwestern-seeming at some times and too absurdist at other times. And it, it feels too risky to be the real me. And he said, risk, that's the word. Keep that word in mind. Because if you feel like you're taking a risk, it probably means you're opening up to people. And then people will start opening up to you. So the very next week, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell a true story in front of an audience instead of playing a crazy, kooky character. And I was 39 years old, so it was weird that this was the first time I was doing this in this way. But I did tell a true story at a true storytelling show that week, and I was terrified. I felt like it was so risky. It was a sexual story, so it was very revealing, yeah. you know? Uh, and I was amazed because while I was telling the story to this audience that night, I did come to those places where I was second-guessing myself. I did come to the places where I was like, ooh, that sounded too gay. Or, oh, I sounded like such an Ohio boy then. Or, you know, whatever it was. (laughs) But it didn't matter. They kept leaning in closer to me and and Mm -hmm. listening deeper and deeper because I was telling the truth. And I felt this connection with the audience that I hadn't felt on stage in years. So I walked away from that show that night and it all kind of came together after years and years and years of failure. It it just all clicked into place. I was like, this is what I should do. I should create a live show and a podcast called Risk, where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. Everyone on the show should be kind of coming out about something or showing some side of their personality that they're not used to sharing in mixed company and exploring these moments in their lives that you know, they they would otherwise be talking to a therapist about, you know, the most emotional or the most revealing or the most meaningful moments in their lives. Once I started studying storytelling shows, I started looking at This American Life and The Moth, Mm -hmm. uh, which both had very popular, well, they still do, very popular podcasts as well as being on the radio. And so I was listening to a lot of their stuff and realizing, oh, They have to keep stuff very clean and not too emotional and politically correct and all these things. Whereas if I put out a podcast, I can let people speak in a much more unfiltered way uh, where there's nowhere where we have to fear to tread. You know, of course, 
on risk, we're extremely mindful about being compassionate about, you know, making sure the storytellers aren't being hateful toward anyone. But when it comes to sex or violence or, or extremely emotional stories or scary stories or whatever, we go a lot of places on risk. Um, so I created this podcast and this live show. We just did it at a space called Ludlow Garage last night here in Cincinnati. The way it works is, on the podcast, I'll announce, hey, Cincinnati, we're coming to town in three months. Pitch us your stories. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because we'll get like 20 pitches or so, and we'll kind of weed through them and say, well, does this sound like something we haven't heard before? Uh, and we'll start interviewing some of these folks and we'll start, you know, narrow it down to about eight and then to finally to four and start really working with those people. And it's interesting because in helping a person prepare a story, a lot of what you do is a little bit more like a therapist than yeah. like an editor. You know, you have to poke and prod people like, wait, how do you really feel about your mother? <laughs> or wait, 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 did you have ulterior motives when you said that? You know, th those are the kind of questions that really get great stuff out of people. So, yeah, Risk is now almost 10 years old. The podcast gets uh, over a million downloads per month. And we just put a book out this past summer as well, uh, as well as a little series that we just put out on Amazon of uh, some stories we put out on Amazon called This Can't Be Happening that you can listen to or download on your Kindle. So we're staying super, super busy. And then I also have this school that I created called The Story Studio. So we teach people how to do storytelling not just for the creative purpose of doing it on stage like on Risk, but also we do a lot of corporate workshops. Mm. Um, you know, some people will hear Risk and they'll realize, whoa, these are not the kind of stories you could share in the office, you know, because they're very uncensored. But they also understand, oh, the basic principles of storytelling can be applied to other contexts, right? And especially in business situations, a lot of people need some help humanizing the things that they want to communicate, you know, uh, learning to speak instead of, of about processes and, and uh, data and, uh, you know, the history of projects to make it about the people and the emotional impact of this or that on the, what the team is doing, you know. So it's been, you know... At the age of 39, I created Risk, and it completely transformed my life mm. um, because so many people heard the show and were so moved by it that it developed this very passionate fan base, and it became a way I could make a living, finally. <laughs> 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 well, a happy ending to at least the beginning of the story, which was that you were sort of lost in your career. Absolutely. And so yeah. at least it, 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 it worked itself out that way. Well, I thought um, we could go look at some art in the galleries right now that I felt has a sort of confessional edge. I'm stretching a bit, but <laughs> we, we're going to look at that. And then uh, because we're open right now and actually the piece has sound, uh, we won't be able to record there. So we're just going to come right back here and just talk about this work. Fabulous. Awesome. At times I have fits of laughing and crying that I cannot control. I am troubled by attacks of nausea and vomiting. No one seems to understand me. 
Evil spirits possess me at times. So we just looked at a piece in the galleries. Uh, it's kind of hard. To, I usually tell people what gallery it's in. It's like in the stairwell. Yeah, <laughs> I not- love that. I love that that it's the kind of thing where, you know, you, you turn around the corner and you're like, Ooh. wait, <laughs> is, is this supposed to be here? <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's, it's on the stairs leading up to the third floor, which is sometimes very tricky for people to find in the building, but uh, that's where it's located. It's on the little landing. Um, and this is a piece called MMPI, in parentheses, Daydreamer, by an artist named Tony Orsler, uh, who is an American artist. Um, so what, uh, maybe just since we're not there to, you know, nobody's, it's this is audio only. It's it's the challenge we have of doing audio about art. It's let's try to describe this piece for people if they haven't seen it. Yeah, you know the well. The first thing is there's kind of an empty house dress, a house dress that is just being held into place by like a tripod, you know, uh, so that it's kind of just floating in air. And then there's this sort of, I guess, it looks like kind of a pillow or whatever where the head of a person might be. And then the actual face of a woman is being projected onto that big head pillow uh, popping up above this floating <laughs> house yeah. dress. Yeah, it's really it's a really <laughs> odd piece because it's it immediately, you know, is figurative. You look at it and you go, well, there's a person. Yep. It's got a head, it's got a body, but then the body is flat and not and there's no effort to sort of mask that fact and like right. you, like you said it's clearly just hanging on a tripod i think today i was looking at it and realized you can kind of see like a coat hanger or something in yeah, there almost. yeah yeah i don't know if it's really a coat hanger or some other structure but it reads like a coat hanger um so yeah i mean it just feels like this outfit that's just hung up you know it's it's the bare minimum of things required to make a person, it feels like. Right, right. Almost yeah. like a, if you were to draw, to just draw a stick figure. Yeah, one of the things, the, it's interesting, like, oftentimes your first impressions about something will be corrected as you look closer. Yeah. Because as I came up the stairs, I assumed that this dress was like a kimono or something. Oh, I, and yeah. So I was like, oh, this is, an, this is a piece of Asian art. This is supposed to be an Asian woman. Right. Um, and then I got distracted by her, by her voice speaking and her face. So it wasn't until later that I took a closer look. I was like, oh, no, that's just a pretty ordinary kind of house dress and, and more nondescript and could be from any country, really. Yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming, though, from with the, the kimono. I think it's maybe from a distance, that red color mm-hmm. and the pattern, which has these um, flowers on it um, that read or there's like birds of paradise maybe uh-huh. <laughs> um, and a kimono is a very square shape too so i think when you just see it from a distance it's it probably makes sense to kind of have that read i feel like i've had that read before when maybe when i first saw it too i kind of understand but yeah i think when you get closer to it you realize it is a lot more western looking kind of yeah. housewifey you know sort of vibe to it that is is definitely not a kimono yeah i mean i get this i i get this odd sensation from it that i had from the very beginning though it definitely feels like a woman you know what i mean it is a dress and it is a woman's face and voice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but this person feels a little bit trapped to me you know they're, they're yeah. like like it, so 
the first thing I hear her saying was something like, I like to read mechanics magazines or something like that. <laughs> uh, and at the point we happened to happen in on her, her eyes were doing a lot of darting back and forth the way when you're trying to read something or, mm-hmm. or follow what's coming next uh, uh, that you're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. So it had the, the feel of, oh, she's making extraordinary, per, extraordinarily personal and revealing eye statements, and yet she's pretty clearly reading them right. so that it almost feels like she's got a gun to her head to <laughs> admit to you that, you know, you know, this terrorist organization has told me to tell you that I like mechanics magazines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a nervousness about her that I think that it's a weird performance. Like, it's very flat, um, and I think that's by design. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, she's not saying a lot of these things with a lot of passion, but they they feel very revealing. Some of them do, and then yeah. some of them feel very mundane. Yeah. So, But she's kind of delivering them all with about the same passion. <laughs> yes. Then we happened to catch the very beginning of yeah. this loop, right? Like, so this goes on for a long time. This yeah. So I don't know if we've actually set up what this is we're talking about. So the piece, what I, I, I said, the title is MMPI, which is, uh, stands for Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Uh-huh. And this is a still um, a test that is still used today to assess personality disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- what we caught when it looped was the very beginning where she says, um, please indicate whether the following statements are true or false. Yes. So she only says that once out of a hundred questions. So I was happy we kind of did catch that, but also that we didn't catch it at first because I was telling you while we were looking at it, I feel like the majority of people who see it never hear that. Right. Once you hear her read the instructions for the test to indicate whether these are true or false, you realize immediately, oh, okay, this is kind of a standard psychological test right. she's taking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes, it kind of flips it because it becomes somebody who seems they are confessing something to you to where then suddenly now you're being asked to reveal something about yourself actually too. Which I think happens all the time in art that part of the point of people revealing things about themselves in art is the extent to which you can either empathize or even start to identify. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? That's why, like, I think, you know, in stories that are told on risk, uh, people will talk about doing, having done horrible things like attempted murder or or just strange things Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, kinky adventures or whatever. Like you'll hear a person talk about something where you're like, I would never do that. Like that is so (laughs) not my thing. Uh, But the emotions that they start to describe will start to resonate with you and you'll think, Oh, well that's that I've actually felt that way before. And so you start to be able to follow this person along on their journey, going to a place you would never want to go. And I think that that's very powerful for us. I think we, we get a lot of vicarious experience that way and a lot of knowledge about 
the world and our lives by listening to other people that way. Have you ever seen any of this artist's other work or that you, do you know of? No, no. Now, now is the artist a woman? No. Oh, okay. His name is Tony uh, Orsler, um, and he is, I would say, most famous for pieces that are similar to this. Uh-huh. This is, I mean, he does a lot of different things, but he uses projection a lot, um, and he's still working today, um, and th- some of his most famous pieces are, are these you know, characters, these kind of, they're always like a little grotesque. I feel like there's something off, they're, they're always a little unsettling. Yes, yes. This, this, this kind of... Uh, disembodied sort of, you know, dress person with a big head feels like something from a nightmare or a hallucination. You know what I mean? Like there's a slight, like it's definitely a kind of surrealistic uh, way of encountering the human form, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, and he, he plays with, that a lot and some of this actually piece is maybe one of the least disturbing things I've seen him do like he has I know that he's used the same actress uh, in in several pieces and one of them she it's like this body and again it's very loose like it's just a big head and it's like she's almost her head is being squashed by like under a mattress I think Mm. and she's sort of just insulting the viewer like don't look at me (laughs) you know she's being really aggressive Mm. to you Um, and so again it's this weird thing of like you want to be sympathetic with this uh, character but then they're insulting you there's a lot of them that are insulting to the viewer like I was watching some uh, videos online of some of his other piece and uh, he does these ones that are just these, like, he's made these sort of shapes that maybe almost look frog-like, where he's got just, like, two eyes that are, like, two uh, separate circles that are sewn into this, you know, big mouth shape. And then it's that's it. It's like a video that's just two eyes that were clearly recorded separately because the eyes don't line up. The uh, eyes will, uh. like, blink at different times, which is <laughs> upsetting to look at. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the mouth is just going, like, Hey, fatty, <laughs> things oh, like that, just wow. sort of saying like these insulting things. But then he's got other ones where like these heads are trapped in jars or um, that are moving or talking. There's one, I think, in a fish tank that's underwater that looks like it's kind of struggling. And so, you you know, you get sympathetic also for these things. They can elicit kind of amazing responses. And it's a really simple trick, right? Like he's just, he, and he's showing us the trick. Like he's not hiding the oh, trick. Oh yeah. Oh like, yeah. But just by projecting onto a surface, um, instead of a screen, we can kind of identify with it as a person in a way, I think more than we could if it was, uh, if it had that frame. Yeah, you know? you're absolutely right. The fact that the head thing is a three dimensional, you know, like pillow sort of thing that mm-hmm. her face is being projected onto does make it feel much more like uh, almost like there's a person there rather than just we're watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I did notice that there was a father and two little girls uh, that came, came up the stairs too. And and the little girls looked a little disturbed. (laughs) I would say this is maybe the least popular piece in the museum. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to, I mean, there's no way of judging that, but it is, I feel like I've watched so many people walk by this and they always say something about like, Oh, that's creepy. Or, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think it gets the response it's designed for, but it does get a lot of that from people who kind of walk by it quickly. I've heard a lot of people just like, Oh, I hate that thing. Or, um, a lot of guards, uh, really hate it just, but they hate anything that, has sound. Yes. Because they have to hear it all day. Yes. Having worked as a museum guard, uh, it, 
if you got on the bad side of the woman who assigned everyone the galleries <laughs> every day, then she would put you in the Dada room for like a whole week just to drive you crazy. <laughs> 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 yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, another thing that occurred to me watching it is and this is totally random, but my thinking, oh, I love psychological tests. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so funny. Like when you take a test like this, whether it's the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram right. or, or even if you have to actually go to a psychiatrist and they want to make sure you're not schizophrenic, um, you're supposed to usually answer these questions as quickly as possible right. so, so that they have that sort of Jungian word association effect with you. Um, but I always get trapped up in, you know, like, I like mechanics magazines. Now, of course, I wouldn't ordinarily say that. But what are they looking for from me here? You know what I mean? Right. Could I like mechanics? You know, like I yeah. get really, you know, like I want to spend time with every question and start unpacking it. Well, and I was trying to, I was doing some research trying to figure out like what, how this test even works. And so much of it is actually meant to assess how you're taking the test and how much you are trying to lie or be dishonest about your own response to it. It's meant to sort of reveal contradictions yeah. it, from one question to another. So you, you maybe would be honest about this way, but you're hiding it in another way. And it's, oh, that's I think it's really I strange. I absolutely get that because I have found that whenever taking a test like this, if I begin to, while taking the test, see a pattern, then I feel like my answers start to become slanted toward what I want it to, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Jesuits, when I went to St. X, some of them were into the Enneagram at that time, which was a, um, it's, I think it's older than astrology, but it, it, it's a, it's a theory about nine personality types mm-hmm. and some Jungians still play around with this, with these nine personality types. But once you like have a, like, I, I always got the impression, oh, I'm a four, I'm the artist, right? <laughs> so whenever I, like, I've taken Enneagram tests like every five years to like see if I still score a certain mm-hmm. way. But, but when I take the test nowadays, I'm like, I know the kinds of questions they ask. So if I sense anything that screams four, <laughs> I'm going to be, you know, oh, I'm the artist. I have to say yes to that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it is. We- so I think, you know, you're right. I think that this test seems to be designed to keep people uh, off their moorings of, wait, what the heck? Uh, why would why would you be asking? I would love to be a n- librarian. And then the <laughs> next question is, you know, I've never committed a crime or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. They, they jump all over the place. The other thing I was thinking about today while watching it is it just made me think of like the Voight Kampf test and Blade Runner too, and the sort of like oh. detecting a human. And then, and then oh. because we're looking at this weird non person, like it became this strange, like what is human? It, it just brought up a, this whole other issue to me of like humanity. She became like this strange, you know, artificial cyborg. intelligence. <laughs> right. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. I'm not a fan of the show Westworld, but I do think that, the premise of the show is incredibly profound and something that we're, we really have to grapple with. And that is that as, as robots become more human seeming, mm-hmm. we're going to have to learn to treat them well or it will make monsters of us. If you right. treat a robot 
uh, you know, if you kill a robot or rape a robot or something like that, it's making you more of a monster, whether or not you're like, well, who cares because it's a machine? No, you, you feel like you're doing those things to a person. Yeah, it's just related to maybe the same kind of automatic way we sort of treat this as a person. And the way I think people kind of either are creeped out by it or hurry past it is the way that it it does convey a a bit of personhood mm. in it. Oh, it, yeah, yeah. In, in a way that is unsettling in the same way we find AI unsettling, unsettling. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, any other thoughts about this piece? I know it's a little, it's it's definitely one of the odder pieces of the museum, but I'm glad to have somebody to talk about it because we really, we I, I, have, I haven't ever talked about a, a piece quite like this before on the oh, show. Oh, I would say that I like being thrown off by things, yeah. and especially when I feel like, okay, this is not just bizarre for the sake of being bizarre, or this is not just confusing for the sake of being confusing, but... Uh, there's stuff to unpack here, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. I think uh, that's a great thing to bring up because I do think a lot of people um, assume a lot of work that they maybe don't get right off the bat is is that like, oh, it's just artists being weird for the sake of being weird. Mm. And I feel like if that's if that was this artist's goal, he could have made it so much weirder, right? Like, <laughs> it's true. It's I mean, true. it's not. It, I, I don't feel like <laughs> I feel like it's so specific. Yeah. That to me, that feels like, no, this is what he wanted to make. And he was going for something really specific here that's not just like totally wacky. You know, it's it's pretty restrained in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, there's actually quite a lot of restraint in this piece. And it's, it's weirdness is, I feel like, calibrated to be um, just weird enough <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be un unsettling. You know, one thing I didn't mention, though, another thing about the, the person seeming a little bit trapped is that she's lit from below and yeah. she's looking up, which gives it almost like she's under interrogation, you know, like like she's she's been sat down and told to read these things, you know, is kind of how it feels. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting about the lit from below. It's something I don't know if I've ever really thought about, but mm -hmm. it's also, it's a really unflattering light too, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's also, it just gives it this very weird vibe and maybe even contributes to the, the creepiness by almost having the like, spooky story uh, flashlight under the chin right, kind right, of right, effect right, right. Too, which maybe is something people also pick up on uh, uh, when they walk by it they go like I don't know about this but yeah that's true uh, I was looking up that he had what he was working on recently and he's been doing a lot of big projects out in public spaces. Mm. Um, so doing, he did one, I think just this past Halloween where he had this sort of installation where he's, it was sort of multi-part with like projections in the Hudson river and then other parts projected on buildings nearby and oh, using the whole space, projecting on trees out in uh, public or like, he uses smoke machines to create a surface that's always changing that he's projecting onto so that these pieces can never sort of be replicated. They are sort of a moment that somebody can only experience at that one time. And then they'll always be a little different because, you know, even the tree part is always going to be a little different. Like the trees are moving and, and with the wind and things like that. So, yeah, you know, I also I, I do want to look him up now. And I, I'm also curious about this test. Like, like it, it feels to me like it's probably the sort of thing that you can only take at the psychiatrist's office right. and, and they have the key to, like, give you the, <laughs> the results right. of your test. Um, 
But if there if there was a way to like take it online and say, <laughs> oh well, yeah, you revealed that you have an eating disorder or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. Well, and I've heard, and just to bring this back too, is something else I thought of that I, I've heard he, he he's brought up the idea of like personality disorders a lot in his work, and and the idea that he almost thinks of the way we consume television and media as being a sort of type of personality disorder of mm. like this sort of like channel surfing mentality. And mm. I think that's only, only gotten stronger with like the way we consume things through the, through online. Now, Absolutely. That it's like that turned up to a million basically of just like com- things coming at you from every angle. Yeah. So I think he also, the way he's engaging with video and using sort of the language of media um, he, that's some, another sort of side of it that I've heard him bring up before. So. You know, it, it was funny because when I was like, say in college or so, and I saw, you know, some technology start to change, like, you know, DVD players and stuff like that. I was looking at my parents and my grandparents and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, it must be so surreal to feel like, oh, the, a man walked on the moon and to get used to that. And right. then now this new technology. Well, now I feel like technology with the Internet has taken such a huge leap forward that I think even young people are disconcerted and feeling like, whoa, wait a minute, especially social media taps into parts of our brain in an addictive way and in a very social, social, you know, uh, the way that we feel like, oh, we're getting affirmation or not and all that kind of stuff. I really feel like I'm quite addicted, for example, to Twitter. And I feel like that that's, I should really get a handle on that because it's beginning to warp, I think, my worldview or my view of I don't know uh, how people interact with each other, you know. So, so I think that we're all kind of at this place in history with with, with technology where we're like, wait a minute, we got to start thinking about our individuality and our personal health as to how we're using this stuff and being affected by this stuff. The complexity of people of of talking about how we can have both sides of us. A lot of stuff what I see online is that it doesn't allow room for that. For the nuance. For yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like like in a risk story, what I like about letting a person tell a story for 15 or 20 minutes or sometimes even an hour and a half, um, is they can share a lot of mixed feelings. They can talk about, well, I said this, but what I was really thinking was that. Or I did this, but oh my gosh, I wish I had done that. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of nuance that comes out when a person can really unpack things like that. Whereas I I totally agree with you. On Twitter, sometimes we feel like we're just making statements like, I like mechanics magazines, (laughs) you know, or whatever. And and it's very definitive. And we can you, you read something, you read a statement that someone makes on Twitter and then it taps into an archetype of what you think that person is in your brain, yeah. even if you don't know who they are. Yeah. You know, like they'll say something and you'll assume that they that they're of the political party opposite yours and say, oh, well, all you people think yada, 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 just based on something you're you're taking out of one sentence they wrote. Yeah. A recent example of that that's actually kind of amazing is is and I'm sure you you've 
everybody was following it in bringing it back to even local issues is the Covington Catholic kids, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there's an issue where people had one story in mind, right? They saw the story, and then it kept getting weirder. Like, the story, mm-hmm. the more you unpacked it, it was like, ugh. Well, it's not exactly what I thought, but I don't still think it's great. And I don't know, like, you know, it, it became a lot more complicated right. than the original story. Um, and you're still like, well, I still think that kid looked real smug, you know, of but course. but it does change things. You know, it does change everything. And and, and it also even when we talk about frames and in, in art and the way like images are framed. I mean, there was a perfect example of how we saw multiple angles on the same situation yes. and depending on who was taking a video it changed the perspective and it changed what was being shown and it changed the the, the whole story uh, another interesting part of that story was to see how people with ideological frame can take almost any story and then start to reframe it in order to because yeah. th- th- that initial story the way it looked was you know uh, the left jumped on it as yeah. you know look at this terrible behavior by MAGA people. Um, and I think the right was downright excited. I, 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 I felt like the, uh, it felt like, Ooh, here is a shining example for us to take the ball out of your side of the court, reframe this, and then give the media a hard time for having the blah, 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 blah. So it's like this sports event that starts happening of, no, we're going to keep it in our framing. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that. No, I think you're right. There was a definite glee that was being taken <laughs> in that event. <laughs> Everybody has said enough about that story probably at this point. We don't really need to retread it. But well, did you have anything else you wanted to to talk about today? I don't think so. This was a total pleasure. It was so fun to like talk about various, you know, angles on art. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. The special exhibition on view right now is Art Academy of Cincinnati at 150, a celebration in drawings and prints. Opening February 15th is Giorgione's La Vecchia, and opening March 1st is Paris 1900. Join us on Sunday, February 17th at 3 p.m. for a free gallery experience with me and artist Gary Gaffney as we discuss our time at the Art Academy of Cincinnati and some of the work in the new Art Academy exhibition. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 